I was just sitting there. There were about 40, 50, maybe 60. There could have been more. There could have been less. And we were all there to see which one of us, which group of us was going to be selected to sit on a jury. And the case we were going to be hearing was one of sexual abuse involving a minor. The usual questions were asked, but then at one point, I can't remember if it was the judge or if it was one of the the lawyers who asked for a show of hands, and the question was something like this, have you or any member of your family or someone who's close to you that you know, have have you been the victim of sexual abuse? And what happened next just floored me. I was completely astounded as the crowd of us, a sea of hands went up. And I was one of the few that was able to keep my hand down. And I was overwhelmed, overwhelmed at the the pain, the brokenness that was represented there in that courtroom. The reality is, for so many of us, we have experienced, in one form or another, things that have happened in our past that have been tragic, that have been hurtful, that have been painful, that have kind of wounded us to the core. It hasn't always been of a sexual nature, but we can all point to things in our past and say, yeah, that thing left its mark on me, and I am forever changed. For some of us, the past can be a crippling thing, a debilitating thing, a thing that just drags us down, and maybe we struggle with the the day-in, day-out thoughts that came rushing back to our heads, and they, they, they push us towards some sort of depressive state. It can be almost crippling. But for others, the past, including where we come from, our, our background, our culture, our, the social status of the family that we were raised in, those things frame the possibilities of our future. For some, we reflect back on our our backgrounds, the history that we have in our past, and we find ourselves resigned to live certain kind of lives, kind of muted from the hopes and dreams that we once had as children, and our futures aren't quite as bright as we once, once thought they might be. And the past just seems to define us and box us in. And I think that's one of the reasons that some of our heroes are those who come from pasts that are troubled. They come from very difficult circumstances, and yet to to defy the expectations of many, they rise above those circumstances, and they dream big dreams, and they achieve, 
and they go on to do great things. We love those underdogs, don't we? We love those who dream and defy the odds. We love the guy from Nowheresville that rises up, he leaves his hometown, and he ends up saving the world. We love the girl who came from that broken home. She was told that she was no good. She would never amount to anything, and yet she is the one who becomes the bell of the ball. We love that awkward, tacky-dressed guy with those weird quirks. No one ever wanted to hang out with that kid, but somehow he becomes the one that everyone looks up to on that campus. When we're young, we dream big dreams. We try to follow the lead of some of our heroes, but then the more miles that we travel and the more pages that we turn in our lives, reality begins to set in. And the bright future that we had before us is dimmed by the shadows of the past. If you've ever felt like the weight of where you came from was pulling you down, pulling down those hopes for your future, I've got good news for you today. Your past, my past, is no obstacle to what God wants to do with your future. No obstacle to God. And this morning I'd like to take a few moments to observe a few details from one of the most important figures in human history and help us see that no matter how pain-ridden, no matter how destitute, no matter how mediocre or unremarkable your past may be, it's no hindrance to what God wants to do. No hindrance at all to what God has planned for your future. We're in Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 through 32. It's a passage that kind of serves as a bridge between primeval and patriarchal periods of history. It's the link between Noah's son Shem and a man by the name of Abram, for whom God would bring about his plan to save humanity from the ravenous effects of their disobedience against him. If you remember back many weeks ago, you'll recall that humanity, people who were created and designed Especially by God, created in his image, and not only created in his image, they were placed in literal paradise. They made a terrible mistake, terrible mistake, when tempted with the possibility of having more, being their own bosses, <laughs> deciding what would be best for themselves, charting their own course, having it all. When faced with that temptation, Adam and Eve decided to defy the orders of their creator and set a new course for themselves by eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And it seemed like such a simple thing. Such a simple thing. Like one of those little white lies that really, do they make that much difference? People today would probably say, is that really such a big deal? But it was a decision that had horrific consequences. Lasting consequences. Consequences that didn't just stop with Adam and Eve. Consequences that spread to everyone who would follow 
in their footsteps. They were cast out of that garden paradise. Day-to-day survival, well, that was now a struggle. Life would be painful. Giving birth to children would be excruciating. And death would be inevitable. In fact, death came all too soon for them. It came all too soon, didn't it? When their firstborn son murdered his younger brother. It didn't take long for that to happen, did it? From there, the poison of sin and its unrelenting consequences, that it just spreads. Darkness would, would pervade and violence would become just commonplace. It would fill the earth. Human depravity, it would reach that point to, so as to exhaust the patience of a holy God in, and cause him to invoke his ferocious cataclysmic response and a worldwide flood would purge the land all except for eight people eight people that god would preserve through the flood and with them a new world a new world begins this is incredible that must have been an incredibly exciting time, a fresh start, a new hope, a chance to start over, to do it right. What kind of world do you want? Think anything. Let's start at the start. Build a masterpiece. But, as we saw very quickly, that world, like the previous one, it would still be plagued by darkness. Because we noted several weeks ago, Sin also floated in that ship. It was right there with them. They would multiply, they would flourish, but as their first father and mother before them, they would aspire to seek greatness on their own rather than the greatness of the God who created him. And they'd say something like this, let's build a tower that reaches to the sky. Let's build it with the strongest stuff imaginable so that it will stand the test of time let's make a name for ourselves and in response as pastor jim shared with us last week god brought confusion and he spread them out all over the known world the future wasn't looking too bright not too bright at all in fact in light of the past or or should i say Dimmed by the shadow of the past, the future of humanity was rather bleak. Rather bleak. But remember, the past is no obstacle to God's plans for the future. No obstacle. You see, he made a promise to Adam and Eve. As he was spelling out the consequences of their sin, he said to the serpent, you remember this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, meaning Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So we saw and we've taken note of over the past several weeks that God had a plan from the very beginning. It was a plan to give humanity a hope and a future. It was a plan to rescue them from the relentless effects of their sin. It was a plan to crush the serpent's head and inject an antidote to his poisonous 
serum that ran into their veins. And even though we've seen time and time again the disappointments and the failures, the suffering, the flat-out evil that people were continually bringing into the world, Genesis points us to the reality of God working. In the midst of all of this, God is still working out his plan. He's unfolding it. He's sovereignly, he's sovereignly making sure that this plan is going to go forth. It didn't matter how evil it gets, God's plan is going to be victorious in the end. It's amazing. Here in Genesis 11, we have a zoomed-in picture of the genealogies here. Back in chapter 10, we, we saw the genealogies. We saw from Noah's three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, spin off the various people groups of the world. And yet we noted in Shem's line, there would be a strand through which hope would come. And now we reach chapter 11, and now we're back to another genealogy. Well, this is a zoomed-in picture now of Shem's line. It's a zoomed-in picture of the line of promise, of the line of hope. And as he writes, Moses zeroes in on what on where the, the hope is going to come from. Verse 10 reads like this. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpashad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpashad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpashad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpashad lived after he had fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ryu. And Peleg lived after he had fathered Ryu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ryu lived 32 years, he fathered Sarug. And Ryu lived after he fathered Sarug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sarug lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sarug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. We remarked a while back that Eber was to become known as the father of the Hebrews. He fathered Peleg and Jokatan. And we learned of Jokatan in Genesis chapter 10. Jokatan's not mentioned here, though. What's going on there? Was this a mistake? Moses, you forgot about him. No, I didn't forget. Because I'm following the promise. I'm telling you the line in which the promise will come. And it doesn't come from Jokatan. It comes from Peleg. We said earlier, this is a bridge in history from Shem to Abram. One scholar calls it a bridge of hope. It's a bridge of hope. In verse 27, we zero in even closer. Now we just look at 
Abram's immediate family here. It says this in verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot, whom we'll talk about in the days ahead. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. It says this, Terah took Abraham, Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So there's a bridge. This is a fast forward that brings us to that moment that we've all been waiting for. Because ever since the creation, we've seen humanity kind of go like this. Boom. And God brings them back. Boom. And they keep going down. And it's just, what is going to happen with these people? Ah, but God has a plan. We're getting there. We're on the verge of God's breaking into history and declaring a promise that would change everything. We're about to see God pluck a man from among the masses and set him apart to do great things. And that's for next week. Before we get there, I think it's important that we take a look at Abram's past. The little bit that we know of Abram's past. And I think what we're going to find might surprise us. We don't have a lot of information here, but what we do have, I think, will give us some good insight into how God works and help us determine whether or not he might still be able to work through someone like me or you. First thing that we need to know about Abram's past is that his family were pagans. Abram's family were pagans. They lived in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans, a place scholars believe to be southern Iraq. In a city, in the city they lived, there was this massive structure called a ziggurat, the ziggurat of Ur. Now, this wasn't a city hall. It wasn't a gymnasium. It wasn't a concert hall. It wasn't a movie theater. It was a center of worship. In fact, Ur had made a name for itself as being the place to go for worshipers of the moon god. That's what you do when you are in Ur. The name Ur actually means abode of the moon god. The ziggurat there had three levels. Each one was painted a different color. And the top of the structure housed this single room which was dedicated to Nana. Also known as Sin or Suin, the god of the moon. And based upon excavation of mass burial sites, they're, they're known as death pits. It's believed that worship of this God involved brutal human sacrifice. Abraham's, Abram's hometown. You might be thinking, well, <laughs> just because Terah and his family lived there doesn't mean that they were actually a part of all of this stuff. Doesn't mean they were necessarily moon worshipers, right? Right. But check this out. 
If you study the names of the family, Terah and his children, you you discover several of them. The names have close connection with moon worship. Terah's name, it's a play off the word for moon. Sarai's name in Akkadian means queen, which was the name of the moon god's wife. Milka, title that was given to the moon goddess's daughter. Now, someone might argue still that, well, well, maybe this was just Terah. Maybe it was the father. He was all into this moon worship stuff, and so he named his kids. They didn't have any control over that. I'd agree. But then you've got to look at Joshua 24, verse 2, and you find this. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. If there was any doubt, Joshua just blows it away. This was a pagan family through and through. It wasn't just Terah, it, was, it seems like it was his kids. It seems like it was Abram himself. Now because we read here in chapter 11, verse 31, that Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, and uh, so on and so forth. And they went forth together from the Ur of the Chaldeans into the land of Canaan, and then they come to Haran, and they settle there. Because we read that here, and then read in verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 1, that God calls Abram to leave the country and go into the land which God would show them. Because of all that, we might draw the conclusion that Abram got his call after the family had already been on the move in Haran. They they started out for the land of Canaan, they stopped in Haran, and that is when he got his call. But if you look carefully at other places in the Bible, you'll find that the call of Abram, it wasn't in Haran. It was back in Ur. Genesis 15, 7, God says, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. The Levites say in Nehemiah 9, 7, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. In other words, it's God who initiated the move to begin with. God started this whole thing. Listen to the testimony of Stephen. Let's go to the New Testament, Acts 7. Brothers, fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land which you are now living. So the Bible gives us no room for doubt that it was in Ur that God called Abram. It was in that dark pagan land. We don't know. Maybe Abram was standing on top of that ziggurat. Maybe he was looking up at the stars, gazing at the moon. Maybe he was in the act of worship itself to this moon God, and that is when God called him. We don't know the exact circumstances, but we do know that it was out of darkness 
that God calls us. Out of darkness that God breaks in and intervenes in his life. Perhaps you didn't grow up in church. Perhaps you didn't have a mom like me that sat you down every morning and went through Bible verses and made sure you memorized them. Maybe you didn't grow up worshiping God. Maybe you grew up in a dark place. I had a student once. He was, he was a junior high student, and he was all into the occult. And then later on, he, he wanted me to talk to his dad. And, and as we were getting ready, to, I was getting ready to meet with his dad. He's like, oh, yeah, by the way, my dad's a warlock. And I was like a year into ministry. I think I was 18. And I sat down with this warlock, and he began to tell me how he stays up late at night and tries to trap the souls of people he doesn't like in these mirrors he has up in his attic. I don't know what kind of darkness you may have grown up in. Abraham didn't grow up worshiping the one true God. He didn't attend Sunday school. He didn't go on mission trips. He didn't go to camp. But none of that mattered. None of that mattered. It was all about God's call of Abraham. It's what God did, not what Abram did or how he even prepared himself. It was all about God plucking him out of darkness. See, Abraham's, Abram's past was no obstacle to God's plans for his future. Another thing that might surprise you is Abraham's past, he didn't grow up in the sticks. He wasn't one of those, those hairy people with the big foreheads that you see over at the Natural History Museum. They're just wearing loincloth and trying to rub two sticks together, trying to make fire. He wasn't that kind of a guy. He was living in a place that was thriving. Ur was a thriving, highly civilized place. Excavations have shown that it was a place where there was plumbing, where there was heating. There were even libraries there. So knowledge was being written down and duplicated and made available for the betterment of society. So we shouldn't think that Abram was some type of ignorant yahoo with nothing, nothing better to do than listen for imaginary voices that would speak to him and tell him things to do. No, in all likelihood, this was an intelligent man with things to do, people to see, places to go. Maybe you've looked at your life and thought, my life is so complicated. I've got so many things going on. I'm in this advanced society. I've got this technology in my pocket that keeps begging for my attention. I have to make these updates. I'm, I'm so busy. I just can't find time for anything. My life is so established. I've got too much going on for God to do anything with my life. Don't forget, Abraham's culture and way of life, that was no obstacle for God's plans for him. What about this? What about family? What about family? We don't get to choose our parents, our brothers, our sisters, our aunts, our uncles. Maybe you felt like your ties with family are holding you back from what God might do. Uh, if it just wasn't for this family, if I could just get rid of these people. Your obligations to family are so great, there's no room for God to do anything with your life. 
Well, from what we see in our passage, family was very, very important to Abram. He was born to an elderly father. His Terah was 70 when he was born. And Abram must have cared deeply for his dad because even though he knew that God had called him to leave Ur of the Chaldeans and somehow convinced his family, we got to go because this, this other God is telling me we need, we need to go here. He convinces his family and they get to Haran and either because his dad was too sick to go on or maybe his dad said, you know what, this is another center of moon worship over here. I'm not leaving this place. I know you want to go over here, but I'm not leaving. Either way, Abram sticks right by his dad. He remains by his dad's side until Terah dies. Abram's brother, Haran, Dies at a young age. He leaves behind a wife and three kids. One of those kids was a man named Lot. And we see how loyal Abram was to him. He watched over him. He cared for him. Almost like he was his own son. We read in Genesis eleven thirty. we already read, Abraham's wife Sarai, she couldn't have any kids. In that society, in that day, that was reason enough to put your wife away. You'd be done with her. She's not giving me any kids. No, she, okay, we'll go find a new one. And yet he stays by her side. Abram's family ties, they were strong. But even that was no obstacle for God. And that's because what God wants to do with our lives is not hindered in any way, shape, or form by our past. It's not hindered by our religious background. It's not hindered by our families, our social status, the amount of money in our bank accounts, the abuses that we've suffered, the stigma that others may have put upon us. Notice how I keep saying it's what God wants to do. We're not talking about what you and I want to do. God's call to Abram, his plan to take an ordinary man and set him apart for something special. This wasn't Abram's dream. It was all God. And we'll read next week how God broke into Abram's world and set him apart for something special. You know, these days are days that are marked by self-focus. We throw around the term narcissism all over the place. There's a narcissist over there. Oh, look at that narcissist over there. We like to point our fingers, but the reality is every time we point, we've got four pointing right back at us, right? We're all about achieving our own dreams, pursuing our own dreams. The greatness that we want to attain is greatness that we've imagined right here. And we even do it in Christian circles. I was attending a, a large local church in the area. And the worship was incredible. The laser lights were off the hook, and the fog machine was amazing. But when it came time for the sermon, the sermon was all about how God wants you to accomplish your dreams. So dream big and watch God work. I think there's something important that we need to grab out of the book of Genesis. And, and one of the important things is this. Life was never meant to be about your achievement, my achievement of my dreams 
or your dreams. This isn't the world that we created. God created this world. This isn't first and foremost our story. This is God's story. That's what we see him continually unfolding in this book, continually moving toward here in the book of Genesis. In fact, every time we see people in the book of Genesis trying to make it about them, trying to make it all about their story, it ends up going sideways, doesn't it? That's what we saw happen in the garden with Adam and Eve. That's what we saw happen with Cain. It's what we saw happen with Lamech. It's what we saw with the, the daughters of, of men marrying the sons of God. We saw it last week with the masses gathering together and saying, let's make our name great. You know, Abram doesn't come to God and say, I have a dream. God, I've got some big plans for you to do through me. He doesn't say that. No, Abram was off doing his own thing. He was off going his own way, and that's when God broke into his life and revealed himself. That's what he did with Abram. That's what he did with Moses. That's what he did with Isaiah, with Mary, with Saul. That's how real men and women get their start. Real men and women of God are called by God. They don't go and stand up on top of a mountain and point to all that they've accomplished and say, hello God, here I am. What can I do for you? They don't say, good morning God, I've got some big plans for you to do with my life. What do I need to do to get you to help me accomplish them? They don't say that. No, God comes to them in their weakness, in their frailty, in their inadequacy, and he alters their plans so that their plans realign with his plans. He gives them the desires of their heart. Think of Saul on his way to making a name for himself by persecuting all these Christians, and God shows up in a blinding light and transforms him into someone who is now making Christians. And it's not by these people's power that these plans are done. It's totally by God's power. Think of Moses protesting and saying, I can't, I can't even speak good. I, I can't go out there and talk to Pharaoh. And so God says, don't worry, I'm going to be with you. And you know, it doesn't matter what kind of awful, sinful lives they led either. Remember Isaiah a few weeks ago, we talked about him. When he came face to face with the holy God, he is ruined. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips. And God has his mouth touched and his sin done away with. It doesn't matter what kind of sin was in your life. The past is no obstacle to what God wants to do with your life. In fact, in all likelihood, the past that you have, as tragic and as painful as it may be, or as ordinary as it may be, God, I believe, is using that to prepare you for the work and the purposes he has for you. Abram's past was used by God to mold and shape him in the person God wanted him to be, to prepare him to be that father of the great nation. Could it be that your past, could it be that my past has been allowed to take the shape that it has so that you might be ready for the purposes God has for you. The question is, 
are we ready to let go of our plans and embrace the ones that he has for us? We'll see next week. Abraham dropped everything to do what God wanted them to do. Are you and I ready to do the same thing? But God, I, I, I got this, this house, I got this mortgage, I got this family, I've got all these things. Abram said, okay, I'll go. Are you and I ready to do the same thing? What's more, are you and I ready to put aside our prayers? I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but the prayers we pray so often are prayers saying, God bless my plans. God, I'm doing this today, or I'm doing that today, or I'm buying this, or I want to invest here. All right, I studied hard for this test. God, bless this, bless this, bless this, bless my plans. What if we put those aside a little bit and said, God, here I am. What plans do you have for me? I just want to be yours. Because I know whatever plans you have, they're far better than any plans that I have anything that I've dreamed up. And in the end, it's not about my greatness, Lord. It's about your greatness. So just take this life and just do with, what, with it whatever you want. Whatever your plans are, Lord, that's what I want. Please use what little I've got to accomplish your purposes. Your past is no obstacle to what God has planned for your future. I don't know what God has planned for your future. I don't know what he has planned for my future. But I know that my future is in his hands. And it's all about his purposes. It's all about his plans. And because of who God is and who I know myself to be, <laughs> I want his plans, not mine.